want to give you um, those, those two updates. Um, so we're in uh, Mark chapter 5. It's a long passage. I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to stand, uh, but this is verses 1 through 20. Uh, Jesus and the disciples have just crossed over the Sea of Galilee. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the storm on the Sea of Galilee where the disciples all thought they were going to drown, and Jesus miraculously, powerfully subdues the wind and the waves and the darkness and the chaos and demonstrates his power over creation. Now we see a different kind of power that he's demonstrating, uh, power over Satan, power over uh, the strong man, power over demonic forces in this war in the heavenlies that, uh, that Jesus is obviously the, the victor over. So let's give our attention to God's word, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see that was, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Let me pray for us. 
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true, that it is eternal, that it reveals to us Jesus. We pray that we would worship him, that we would agree with your disciples and with the church throughout the ages and with the heavenly host that he does everything well. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, <clears throat> I was uh, in high school, I uh, did a couple of, couple of plays. I was a thespian. And um, we did uh, two, two plays that I was in. One was Biloxi Blues and the other one was Charlotte's Web. And in Charlotte's Web, I played, I know, it's a little bit of a, I don't know, as the sort of demonic uh, Sergeant Toomey in, Char- in uh, Biloxi Blues. But then in, in, in Charlotte's Web, I was uh, Fern's dad, Mr. Arable. And uh, if you remember this story, you know, they're on a farm and there's a, a litter of pigs that are born and there's a runt and mean old Mr. Arable is about to dispatch Wilbur. You know, not good. And Fern freaks out, and she's like, no, 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 Daddy, don't do that. I'll raise the pig. And, and so Mr. and Mrs. Arable decide, well, this will be a good, you know, little responsibility lesson for Fern, and she can raise the pig. Uh, and, you know, all of a sudden, the spider shows up, starts writing these words in the web above Wilbur, how he's radiant, and how he's terrific, and, you know, you, you know the rest of the story. Um, why are we talking about Charlotte's Web? Well, because in Charlotte's Web, people are rooting for Wilbur. They're, they're rooting for the pig. And in this really bizarre, very strange story in Mark chapter 5, it's really not uncommon for people to go, what's up with the pigs? And, and they, they have this sympathy, right, for these 2,000 pigs. And the demons go into the pigs, and the pigs freak out, and they rush down the steep slope over the cliff or whatever. You can see this image on the front of your bullets and kind of give you a, a mental picture of what's going on there. And all these pigs drown in the Sea of Galilee. What's going on? And we feel this sympathy for the pigs. We're rooting for the pigs. That's fine as long as you don't miss the point of this story, which is, are we rooting for the man who is possessed by this legion of demons? How, how concerned for him are we? And how can he, how can, how can we, how can he, how can we become terrific and radiant? in God's eyes. That's what we want. That's what every human being wants. We want to be Wilbur. We we want to be terrific. I want to be radiant. How can we we get in on that when it comes to our relationship with God? So um, quick reference, you know, as, as I mentioned, this story happens on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus and the disciples have left the area near Capernaum. They're now on the eastern um, shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
and they've crossed over through the night, and you remember what happened, the storm that's raging, and all these career fishermen think they're going to drown. This was the storm of storms, and, uh, and Jesus calms the storm. And now they see Jesus' power not only over the wind and the waves and everything, the demons see Jesus' power over uh, the, the power of darkness and the power of the demons. So Jesus steps out of the boat, and immediately he's confronted with a polluted and unclean environment, uh, an un, a spiritually unclean, ceremonially unclean, like, like, and then just unclean, unclean. So what's going on here? This is, this is a Gentile region. It's the region of the Decapolis, the Ten Cities. Uh, the Decapolis was uh, established under uh, the, the Greek Empire, and then it transitioned to the Roman rule. And so this is a non, traditionally non-Jewish community. And so, you know, they're on the eastern side here among the Decapolis, and the question is, well, why are Jesus and the disciples over here? Well, because the gospel goes not just to the Jewish community, but to all humanity. And, um, and none, but nonetheless, I just want you to recognize this is an unclean, ceremonially, for Jewish people, this is an unclean region. And then, you know, you see that the place is basically functioning as a pig pasture. Have you ever, have you ever driven by a pig pasture? Do you, do you know what creates the mud that pigs like to wallow in? Do you know, where, you know what makes the dirt wet? It's not just rain. It's nasty. A pig pasture is, is nasty. Like it, so it's, it's unclean just because it's unclean. Like even the air, even the air is filthy. It just smells, it reeks. And, and so you've got this ceremonially unclean area, this, this unclean, dirty area. And, and then you get this guy who is, um, as Mark records, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. This man is unclean. He has an unclean, demonic spirit. And he lives in a graveyard. We heard about Jesus among the waves two weeks ago. This is Jesus among the graves. And a grave is an unclean place. A graveyard is, is a place where dead bodies are. And, and for ceremonially clean Jewish people, they couldn't touch dead bodies or else they would become unclean. So what's a good Jewish boy like Jesus doing among <laughs> so much uncleanness? This, this crazy man comes out of the, the tombs. He's got a demon and he's, he's like rabid and he meets up with Jesus. This is truthfully, you know, th this seems extreme, but this is just another day uh, at the city dump for Jesus. Like ever since he was born, he's been smelling, you know, just filthy air and he's been dealing with sinful people and he's been exposed to this world's brokenness and uncleanness. He, he can roll with this. It's going to be fine for him. But it is an unusual situation. This is a really remarkable passage. And if you're new to the Bible or new to the church and you're reading along here and you're going, this is crazy, you're right. 
the rest of us have just sort of been conditioned to think, oh, what a nice story, you know, because <laughs> we think it's in the Bible, therefore everything in the Bible is supposed to be nice. This is weird. There's some weird stuff in here. Let's, we're going we're gonna to unpack some of it. Let's talk more about this man uh, who comes up to Jesus. So in verse 6, we read that he saw Jesus from afar. He ran and fell down before him, and he's crying out with this loud voice, you know, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Uh, and he's begging him, begging Jesus not to torment him. Um, Jesus has been saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So Jesus is having mercy and sympathy on this demon-possessed man and exercising this demon. And then Jesus says, what's your name? And he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. This, the, these demons are waging war against this man, against his, uh, against his humanity. They're trying to dehumanize him. That's what sin does. That's what darkness does. That's what demonic forces seek to do. They seek to dehumanize us. They seek to obscure the, the reflection of the image of God in us. We were created in God's image, and it's the, the design of sin and the intention of Satan to obscure that image and to, to ruin that goodness and that beauty in us. And you see the demons doing this in a number of ways. Uh, they are stripping him of his humanity. Uh, they're, they're stripping him literally of his clothing. Uh, at the end of the story, remember when it says they, the people come and they see the man and he's sitting there clothed and in his right mind. So the demons had so possessed him and, and scattered his thinking in his mind that, that he had stripped all his clothes off and he's naked. So they, they've sort of stripped his dignity. Uh, they and, and he's revealed in a, in a shameful way. Um, they've stripped his sanity. Obviously, he's shrieking, he's crying out, he's lashing himself with rocks, and he's bleeding, and he's cutting himself. I mean, this man has lost his sanity. They've stripped his rationality. And he seems like a rabid animal. They've they, they're stripping him of community. Where does he live? He lives alone in a graveyard, and he has no family around him. He has no friends around him. Nobody can get near him because he will abuse them. They can't bind him. They can't restrain him. And so the only thing left is to exile him. So in all these different ways, the demons are dehumanizing this man. And they're robbing him ultimately of his life. He is among the walking dead. He lives in a graveyard. Do you get the picture of what's going on here? Um, they're stripping him of the image of God. There's the, the summer home group, by the way, I just wanted to give you a little uh, aside for this. The Kochlers are hosting it, and it's going to be a, a curriculum based on what does it mean for us to, to reflect God's image? What does it mean that you and I are created in the image of God. It'll be a great study this summer, so read your bulletin to get more information. Um, th this, these demons that have possessed this man identify themselves as a legion. Like, that's their, the name they give themselves, but it's a clue, really, to, to the number uh, and the, the, you know, the, the size of what's going on here inside this man. A legion is a, a group, uh, in Roman army terms, is 5,000 to 6,000 soldiers. 
just to give you a sense of the, uh, the size of what's going on here, the spiritual significance of, of how devastating uh, this man's uh, situation is. And this is an unusual display of demonic power. You don't see this, this number again, as far as I'm aware, in, in, the, in the New Testament. Nobody can do him, and he is the personification of the demonic strongman. Nobody can bind him. Jesus had been talking about this uh, two chapters ago. If you remember Mark chapter 3, Jesus said, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. Uh, people had been accusing Jesus of doing his miracles by the power of Satan. And Jesus is saying, no way, that's impossible. Satan, divide, if a house is divided, it can't stand. Uh, and the only way to exercise demons from somebody is to tie up the strong man. Uh, but if you don't bind the strong man, you can't get power over him. And so nobody can bind the strong man except Jesus. So this man uh, is possessed by these demons. Uh, it's a legion. And then in verses 10 and following, we read how this great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. Jesus gives permission to the demons to go into the pigs, and the pigs rush down the steep bank and are drowned in the sea. So uh, what's weird about this chapter is the pigs, right? We, we were in college and, uh, at a retreat with uh, InterVarsity uh, one time. We were down at uh, Windy Gap, I think was uh, where we were, and, and, and there was a lake, a little island and a lake, and a bunch of uh, our friends actually like did a... Uh, a reenactment of this parable. <laughs> and there were a bunch of, a bunch of college students, just want to picture this, a bunch of college students, um, and, and, and they're all down on their hands and knees, and they're in, you know, depicting this herd of pigs, and they all literally, on their hands and knees, go down the shore of the island into the lake, and they go into the lake, and they go into the water. And it's just this crazy scene. And you just go, what's going on here? What? I don't want you to miss the fact that this where they drown is the Sea of Galilee. And what had just happened the night before? The night before was the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples are all afraid of what? Drowning. So Jesus demonstrates his power over creation and saves the disciples, and, and other boats were with them too. All the other boats too, um, by implication, are saved from drowning. And now they see a whole herd of pigs rush into that same body of water where they were afraid they were going to lose their lives and the pigs drowned instead. Do you think there's a connection there? I don't want you to think that, that the disciples were missing the, the significance of that. That there's a, a substitution going on. That there's a, there's a drowning, yes, but it's not us. And thank the Lord it's not us. And there's, a, there's an interesting, uh, some of the commentators have pointed out, there's, there's intentional language in this passage describing battle and alluding to war. Um, the, the, the word that, that is used for this herd of pigs is an unusual word. It's typically used for like a battalion or a group of soldiers, and when Jesus grants permission to the, to the legion to enter the pigs, he's doing what a commanding officer does to a subordinate officer in granting permission to go. The pigs 
charges, like it's a military term. They don't just rush down the bank. They charge down the bank. And they, and they perish uh, in the Sea of Galilee. These are military terms describing a war, a battle that's going on. And I like what Tim Keller says. When the Bible speaks about our encounters with supernatural evil in life, it uses battle language. And if you don't know where the attack is going to come from, or if you underestimate or mischaracterize the enemy, you will likely lose the battle. Spiritual warfare is real. There's a real enemy. Demons are real. Supernatural darkness is real. For all our sophistication, for all the ways that we think, you know, and, and we've um, minimized uh, these things with uh, a, a devil, you know, with little horns and a forked tail and a pitchfork, uh, Jesus takes this very seriously and so should we. But our reaction should not be to cower in fear over demons and darkness and Satan. Instead, we need to recognize who is the true strong man. Is it the man who had the legion and the demons that possessed him? No. There's one stronger than him. And he's the one that we worship. He's the one that we truly fear. So you get this interesting contrast uh, in verses 14 and following uh, between the reaction of the crowd and the people who come and they, they see and they, they see the man and they hear the story and they, what do they do? They beg Jesus to leave. And then you get the contrast between the man who had the legion of demons and is now well, and what is he doing? He's begging to go with Jesus. He's begging to be with Jesus, and the rest of the people are begging for Jesus to go away from them. All right? So now we see that someone stronger than the strong man is here, and the people, I want you to see the end of verse 15, uh, they see the man who had the legion, he's sitting there, he's clothed, he's in his right mind, and they were afraid. They're afraid because now they see someone even stronger than the one that they were afraid of before, and they had exiled him to the graveyard. Now they see somebody who's got power even over that power, and they're going, we don't know what's going on. And they do what people normally do when we are confronted by something that's strange and foreign to us that we don't understand, what do we do? Get away from me. And we're scared. And so this is, this is a, a normal reaction, but it's a tragic one. They're asking Jesus to leave. They're afraid because they don't understand him. Instead of asking questions, instead of drawing near to him, they're running away from him or they want him to, to, to leave their presence and Jesus, in fact, gets back into the boat. He's heading, he's heading away. So it's, it's, not, it's nonetheless true also, though, that these people who had saw what had happened to the man, they, they, it, it's like a sideshow to them, and they're amazed, and they're, they're perplexed, and they want to know more about what's going on. Um, but they're not, they're telling everybody about what happened, but they're not, are they endorsing Jesus? No. They're, they're more like people who um, are, are witnessing something tragic, you know, uh, like the shooting in Virginia Beach. Uh, and you get the, the news reporters, inevitably they're going to go talk to people who, 
who were in their cars and they took pictures of people coming out of the buildings. And they're going, well, tell me what happened. And they're like, oh, it was awful. And so they're, they're more like the bystanders talking about this, in this case, this paranormal, crazy thing that happened. Like they would almost be qualified to be guests on Dr. Phil or some, you know, wild-eyed talk show. They're not endorsing Jesus. They're just describing something paranormal and weird and crazy. But not the man to whom Jesus actually ministered, who had a personal encounter with Jesus. Like like to the people who were just sort of third party, just witnessing everything, all they're doing is just relaying what they saw and just kind of the sensationalistic thing. But to the man whose life was changed by Jesus, who had a real encounter with the living God, is he, what, what story is he telling? Jesus tells him to go back to his family and his friends and, and tell them how the Lord has had mercy on you and all that Jesus, all that the Lord has done for you. And his story is quite different. He's not just relaying sensationalistic paranormal, you know, um, stories and anecdotes. He's talking about the change and the difference that grace and the love of God and the mercy of Jesus has made in his life. That makes all the difference. In verse 18, he begs that he might be with Jesus. And in verse 19, Jesus Slippery, unpredictable Jesus did not permit him. He says, no, you can't come with me, which is like, what? But he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This man wants to to be with Jesus. Isn't that what we've been talking about through Mark? Like, what does Jesus want from his disciples? He wants them to be with him. That's what he wants from us. Be with me. And there's, there's truth to that, and then there's sort of a corollary that we have to acknowledge where in John 15, Jesus talks about, You're, I'm not always going to be with you. What does he mean by that? In, in the flesh, like, I wanted to say in person, but that's not really accurate. What I, what I think we need to say is he's not always going to be with us in the flesh, but he will always be with us in person just through a different person, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And what this is showing us, it's giving us a foretaste of what's going to happen when Jesus would sit with his disciples, they would sit in the upper room, they would share the Last Supper, and Jesus would tell them, look, I, I'm going away, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I know you're going to miss me, but I'm leaving you with a gift that you don't understand right now, but is far greater, far more beneficial for you than I go and send you the Holy Spirit than if I stay and be, be sort of constrained to one particular point on this planet, wandering around, ministering to whoever can get close to me, and the rest are far off. Instead, he can give his spirit to each one of us. And so when he's dismissing this man, he's not saying, no, you can't be with me. But he's showing us, yeah, there's going to come a time when we go and we tell our stories, but, and Jesus is with us in a different way, through his spirit. He would be separated from him personally, but not spiritually. So Jesus 
came, as we see in his relationship with this man, to rehumanize us. This man has a story to tell. And he goes back to his home, he goes back to his family and his friends and spreads throughout this whole Greco-Roman region, the Decapolis, he, he, he spreads to that whole region the story of what Jesus had done for him to rehumanize him, to restore the image of God in him. Sin has turned him, and the demons had turned him into an animal, like selfish and unthinking and impulsive and compelled by instant gratification. And instead, what Jesus and what the gospel does is it restores our spiritual sanity so that we can learn how to love, so that we can learn how to be other-oriented, so that we can learn how to forgive, so that we're not just beasts, but we're reflecting the beauty of who Jesus is. So this man's got a story about Jesus and the gospel rehumanizing him. What, what's our story? What's your story? How has the gospel worked in your life to change you? This is incredibly important because we either are bystanders who are you know, relaying you know, paranormal stories because it's kind of crazy and remarkable what happened on such and such a day, you know, and maybe that's how you talk about the Bible and Bible stories. Or we are changed men and women and boys and girls who each have a story of how the gospel, like the supernatural power of Jesus has changed us. Do you get the difference? So what does the gospel do for us? How are you healing, right? The gospel isn't this message where you go around and I go around saying, hey, I've got my act together and why can't you get your act together too and become like me? No, the gospel is basically, hey, Jesus is healing me. He saved me, he is saving me, and I know he can help you too. We're all works in progress. The gospel teaches us how God offers forgiveness to us. And, and we, in our, uh, in, as the Holy Spirit humbles us and helps us to see clearly what's true, because this offer of forgiveness comes to us, we are then free to humble ourselves and confess our sins and to stop pretending that we don't need forgiveness. That's a dramatic change. And it takes a supernatural power to break a heart of stone that's prideful and arrogant and self-reliant and to make that heart soft and humble and knowledgeable about its need for grace and mercy. And it takes the gospel, like it, it takes the, the gospels to change us, to, to help us then receive that offer of forgiveness and then become the, become the kinds of people that can extend forgiveness that don't, you know, demand a pound of flesh anytime somebody wrongs you or sins against you or you're holding that grudge and reminding them again and again and again of how they've wronged you. Drop it. Move on. Be changed because the Lord forgave you and we can forgive others. So, um, you know, we were lock, looking earlier at just this, this unclean situation that Jesus walks into. And, and so that's another way that the gospel brings change. How has God cleansing you and removing your sin and your guilt and your shame, 
How has the gospel's cleansing of you helped you embrace those who who you formerly thought were unclean and, and dirty and different from you? Like even beneath you, right? That's how we view people apart from the grace of of the gospel changing us. We get suspicious of what's different. We get suspicious and we start to think that those who aren't like us are inferior to us. And so that's what we mean when we say the gospel is rehumanizing us and that the mercy of Jesus is compelling us to tell our story. Like, do you have a story? You do have a story. I mean, it's not whether or not you have a story, but maybe a better question is what story? are you telling? Uh, as, as individuals, we need to, to be mindful of how we're talking, how we're acting, and, and what are we communicating to the people that see us live our lives day in and day out? Because we're either telling a story of self-reliance and independence and just, you know, being good, or we're telling a story of relying on Jesus and humbling ourselves, and following him, and giving him credit and glory for the changes that he's making in us. And I I want us to tell that story. I love how Dan Allender puts it. He says, take seriously the story that God has given you to live. Your story is the one that could set us all ablaze. And that's the story of grace. That's the story of God changing us. But there's no change if it's just all about you know, what you're doing, what I'm doing, that's a pretty boring story. But if we can point to the one who's really changing us, that's an exciting story. Uh, the, the, mentioned the women's, uh, there's a, um, um, two different women's studies that are going on this summer, and they're going to be studying Nancy Guthrie's book about nine ways that the gospel is shaping our story. So if you want to learn more about this, um, ladies, those are, those are two opportunities uh, this summer to do that. Um, let me wrap up by just kind of coming back to the pigs, you know, the question about the pigs. Why did the pigs have to die, right? This is not like the movies. You, know, you ever sit through the, the end credits and you watch all the actors and all the, the, the people who are working on production and who's the best boy and who's the key grip, and then you get to production babies and then you get to the soundtrack, and then the very last thing is that little line that says, no animals were harmed in the making of this film. And we all go, oh, that's nice. Not so in Mark chapter 5. 2,000 pigs are dead at the end of Mark chapter 5. Why, why do these pigs have to die, right? Um, I, I, we, there's all kinds, of, all kinds of answers, all kinds of, of you know, conjecture, basically. And I want to encourage you, if you really are bothered by this, go ahead and study. Look it up for yourself. But um, I want to just leave you with at least this thought. We don't necessarily know why. But I don't want you to get hung up so much on the worth of the pigs as much as the worth of this man. What, a, what is a human life worth in God's eyes? Like, okay, we know the answer to that. Oh, yeah, we are worth so much. You, know, we're in a, you can't measure it. Immeasurable. Human life, humanity, we're worth so much. And yet, we're in this culture 
that betrays that default answer time and time again. Every time a baby is aborted, uh, every time uh, we uh, exploit an immigrant, uh, every time we think somebody that is a different color from us is inferior to us, like every time and time again, we, we tell with our words and with our actions that human life really isn't worth that much. But what Jesus is demonstrating for us is that a human being is worth at least as much as 2,000 pigs. And Jesus told us earlier on, you are worth more than many sparrows. How much are you worth? How much are you worth? In God's eyes, how much are you worth? The real question is not, why did all these pigs have to die? You know what the real question is? Why did Jesus have to die? What's a good Jewish boy like Jesus doing on a cross? outside of Jerusalem on a hill that they nicknamed the place of the skull. What is he doing on a cross dying for our sins, for all of our uncleanness? What's he doing dying as a cursed man, an unclean man? Remember the man when he was possessed by the demon? Naked, bleeding, lacerated, crying out. Do you see how one day Jesus was going to take this man's place? Tormented, attacked by Satan on that cross? for us, for him and for us. That's why Jesus had to die, to take our sins away so that we could have a place to go with our sins so we don't have to hide them, we don't have to cover them up, we don't have to pretend. We can confess them and they can be forgiven because of the grace of the one who came. Remember Charlotte's Web again? Wilbur was radiant. He was terrific. What was the last word that Charlotte wove into her web? Anybody remember? It wasn't radiant. It wasn't terrific. It wasn't amazing. It wasn't wonderful. It wasn't any of those you know, superlatives. You know what it was? Humble. With, 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 the spider, with Charlotte the spider's last breath, she wove into the cross beams of that uh, animal pen at the, um, at the county fair uh, her, her last masterpiece with the word humble in it. And that act, that dying act, is what saved Wilbur's life. And Jesus did something very similar on cross beams. 
with his last act, with his dying act, he showed us that through humility, you and I could get access to heaven, to eternal life. Like, humility isn't what saves us. Nobody gets into heaven because, oh, I'm the most humblest. Like, that's almost an oxymoron. I'm the humblest. That's not what gets you into heaven. What gets us into heaven is having the humility enough to say, I need a Savior. I need Jesus. I need forgiveness. And when we call out to Jesus and he forgives us, that's, <clears throat> that's what makes us radiant and terrific in God's eyes. All right? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we give you thanks that you've loved us, that you've given us your son so that we can know you and we can have our sins forgiven, that we can be raised up and restored um, in, in our spiritual sanity so that we can have a story to tell of the ways that you're changing us and transforming us so that we can show the world more and more accurately uh, what you look like um, in all of your goodness and all of your love and all of your joy. Please multiply in us these fruits. Please show us more and more what it means uh, to follow you and to live for you. Uh, Lord, pray for any here who are just connecting the dots on what it means uh, to, to ask for forgiveness and to have new life because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we do for ourselves. Please help them to, uh, to hold on to Jesus. Help all of us to hold on to Jesus and not let go. We pray for our, our community, our, our church body here, our family. Uh, we, we pause and we pray for a few families in particular. We pray for Shirley's